And let me tell you, the church in America, but not just the church in America, the church here in Kansas City, we have been affected by this right of individualism. In fact, many of the times we've allowed this individualism to seep into our ideas of religion and what Christ has called us to do. Specifically, within Christian circles, uh, actually, let me stop there and say I want to address religion in general in the United States. Um, I want to just say that religion in the United States has kind of gone through a transition over the last several years. We begin to see religion itself becoming more private matter in the United States. In fact, recently the Pew Research Group identified a growing number of individualists who identified as spiritual, but not necessarily linking themselves to religion or religious institution. This group in 2018 constituted actually 32% of the entire United States population. I can only imagine as a result of the events of the last several years, that has significantly grown as we approach the end of 2021. Primarily, this group, this 32%, believes that people should rely on themselves, that's that individualism piece right there, rather than established or organized religious traditions to answer spiritual questions. When we narrow that down and we specifically look at Christian circles, this private religion, or this privatized religion, has led to a variety of reasons like I'm into Jesus, but not the church. Briefly, I do just want to pause here and give a little bit of context. If that's you here, if you're saying, I've definitely said that before, or I feel that way, I want you to know there is no condemnation here. In fact, I very much understand the emotional sentiment, the heartfelt words and desires behind a phrase like that. Historically, when we examine the church, we can see that the church has been accused of sexism, racism, has been found guilty of so many other things like genocide. We see that it's been found guilty of child abuse, of embezzlement. The list goes on and on. And all you have to do nowadays, and you have to look back on those historical textbooks, is turn on the cable news to see this. And my heart primarily is not concerned with the reputation of the church or the controversy of a church, even though that's very important. My heart is primarily concerned with the line of bodies, the trail of bodies that has followed those events. So if that's you here today, I want you to know that Midtown Church is not just committed to renewing the reputation of the local church but we're also committed to being a safe and honest space where people can come with their hurts, their mistrusts, and their abuse, and they can be honest. I want to say that I'm so sorry. I'm sorry that this has happened to you. I'm sorry that you've experienced it. But I promise here at the town church, we desire to do better. But regardless of the empathy or the understanding that I have for a phrase like, I'm into Jesus, but not the church, I have an issue with it. And I know that that's going to sound really self-serving because, uh, yes, it's job security for me, right? I am a pastor. I did start a church. So for the church to become irrelevant uh, is a little problematic for me and what I do. But setting aside self-serving bias, I have an issue with the phrase because Jesus was very much into 
the church. In the words of Tyler Stanton, pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, for Jesus, the church was never optional. Jesus was not anti-institutional. He regularly led his disciples and himself into the church of the first century, which was the synagogue and the temple. The Gospels also show us that although Jesus regularly showed up to the temple and the synagogue, he didn't turn a blind eye to the corruption of the Jewish belief or the institution of his day. In fact, he was really aggressive about confronting it. We see him going into the Jewish temple and flipping over tables out of anger and disgust for the Jewish elite swindling the Gentiles. We see him get angry at the Jewish leaders of his day for chastising his disciples and using legalism to keep them from gathering wheat during the Sabbath. There's so many more examples I could give, but ultimately we find that Jesus at times was mean or even rude as he confronted the Jewish elite and the Jewish elders of his day. But yet, we don't see Jesus boycott the church. We don't see him say, this is not for me. We don't see him protest it. We see him show up time and time again. Not only that, but we continue to see Jesus' disciples engage with and go to the synagogue and the temple after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. We see the church continue to messily gather time and time again in letters like Corinthians and Ephesians. And let me tell you, if you think the church of today is messed up, oh gosh, just go to the New Testament, read through some of those letters, and you'll be like, there's a lot going on there. Okay? So what we see here is when we examine the scriptures, we see that Jesus couldn't have been an individualist. Jesus could not have bought into privatized religion. For Jesus, the church was never an option. So as we approach our passage today, I'm going to do a little right turn here. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Uh, we see that we are continuing here on the Sermon of the Mount. Alex last week preached on the Beatitudes, or what's known as Matthew 5, 1 through 12. And we learned that to be a part of the kingdom of Jesus, that when we are his disciples, we are blessed by him, not just as people at times who are crushed by the world, but people who advocate for the crushed. We also learned that there are a few different things that we need to keep in mind as we approach and continue to go through the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm going to outline these three things again. It's a good reminder for us. The first is that the Sermon on the Mount is not an isolated event, but rather the sermon itself is a personification or an exemplification of Jesus' very life. It's as if Jesus is saying, here's everything I believe and everything that I'm going to do right here for you right now. I'm just going to get it all out on the table. The second is this. The whole sermon is Christ describing what life in the kingdom and allegiance to him looks like. So for the very practical people in the room here, Jesus isn't just saying, hey, you need to live life in my kingdom. He's actually showing us what that looks like. He's going to give us some responsibilities. He's going to give us some jobs. He's going to give us some guidelines. And third, we learn that obedience to the Sermon on the Mount is a practice of imagination. 
We have to take many of the things that Jesus told his disciples to do in the first century and say, how does this apply to my 21st century life? What does that look like? So as we approach our passage today, we see, just like I took a right turn, Jesus actually take a right turn here. He's going from times of blessing, saying, oh, I'm going to bless my disciples, to a time of saying, here are some responsibilities for you. He's like using the sandwich technique. Anybody use that at like work or in their personal relationships? You like give the nice, positive things in the bread, right? And then you hit them with the meat. It's like the harder stuff to digest, the more difficult things to do, the more difficult concepts. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's shifting us to bread, and we're moving on to meat. It's important to know that as we approach this passage, that Jesus is specifically speaking to disciples who have dedicated themselves to following him. Up until this point, we see large crowds of people gathering around Jesus. We'll continue to see that. Primarily, we have admirers, people that want to be healed, which is all awesome and amazing and wonderful. But as Jesus actually physically goes up this mount, the Sermon on the Mount is actually given on a mount, as he physically walks up to this mount, those that decide to follow him, we see, are physically the ones more dedicated to him. So he's traveling up this mountain. As people are following him, we see that the audience here for Jesus is dedicated followers. So as we approach verse 13, Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Here Jesus is saying, you, my dedicated followers, my dedicated disciples that have traveled up this mountain with me to hear what I have to say, you are the salt among the people of this land. Salt, in the first century, would have most likely been taken from the Dead Sea in Palestine. And so, if you don't know anything about the Dead Sea, it's a sea that has a lot of salt in it. Uh, but it's also a sea that people like bathe in and like, do other things in, like throw out the garbage, all of that. So sometimes the salt itself will become very impure. And when that happens, when the salt becomes impure, sometimes the sodium chloride leaches out of the salt. Do you have any like chemistry majors or people that like love chemistry in school? I was not one of those people. So I learned this week as I was doing my research that sodium chloride is the very thing that gives your salt salty flavor. Without sodium chloride, salt ceases to be salt. And in first century Palestine, there was no way to add sodium chloride back into the salt. They did not know how to do that. They didn't have like test tubes and identified elements and all those different things. So we had to add the sodium chloride back into the salt. So when that they literally just had to throw the salt away. It had to go. It had to be gone. In today's society, there is a pressure in the words of religious scholar Bernard to not be too Christian. There's a pressure to not take our religion too seriously. Just relax a little bit, right? Chill out. It's not that big a deal. And yet, Jesus here is warning us don't lose your salt. Don't lose the sodium chloride. Don't lose the very thing that makes you a dedicated disciple of Jesus. If you do, you'll be useless. Just like salt that's lost its saltiness. 
When we lose our saltiness is when we fail, excuse me, when we lose our saltiness, when we fall in the te- into the temptation to not take our discipleship to Jesus too seriously. Jesus goes on to say, picking up in verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city set upon a hill cannot be hidden. In the ancient world, light was very much used as a metaphor for knowledge, truth, love, and revelation. And throughout scriptures, light specifically is associated with Jesus. In fact, Jesus actually says in John 8, 12, When Jesus declares to his disciples here in verse 14 that they are the light of the world, it's as if he is passing his light onto them. This is a commissioning statement. He is saying, I, Jesus, am the light that cannot be hidden. You, dedicated disciple, reflect me. You bring knowledge. You bring truth. You bring revelation and you bring love to all those around you. You be me, Jesus, in the world. So to be a light to the world is to exemplify the very person of Jesus. Jesus continues to say, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. Here, Jesus is using yet another metaphor or example of visibility. He says people don't light lamps and put them under a basket. Anybody hide it under a bushel? Anybody remember that song from Sunday school? If you're in Sunday school, it's a personal favorite. First hand motions. Anyway, um, you don't put a light under a basket. Right? You don't do that. You don't light it and put it under a basket. The light must be visible for it to work. Visibility is a requirement of discipleship to Jesus. Not only should you be salty and have the flavor of Jesus, but others need to see that you are a representation of Jesus. Your light cannot be invisible because if it is, it ceases to be loved. Right? It's darkness. And finally, in verse 16, he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus brings the metaphor home here. Brings all of the different ideas of salt and light together. And he shows us that being salty, shining our light, is letting others see our good works. Scholars primarily believe that this word here that's being used for good works is not just referring to the Beatitudes that we learned about last week, but it's actually referring to the whole rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you remember, one of the things I said we have to keep in mind as we learn about the Sermon on the Mount is that the Sermon on the Mount itself is a personification of who Jesus is in the life that he lived. That is to say, when people look at you, They should see Jesus, the good works of Jesus. They should see the personification, the manifestation of the Sermon on the Mount in your life. Jesus is saying to them, when people look at you, I want 
see that you are being with me, that you are becoming like me, and that you are doing exactly what I did. Here's the big idea. For you to maintain your saltiness, for your light to shine, you must be with Jesus, become like him, and do what he did. You must be the personification of the Sermon on the Mount. You must be the exemplification of Jesus' life itself. So as we begin to conclude here, worship team, if you guys want to come up. Um, we talked about earlier how we have to use our imagination, right, to take these principles from the first century and say, how do they apply in our 21st century life? What does this look like? So here it is. We must cast aside our rugged individualism and privatized religion to become a visible disciple of Jesus. According to a 2017 Barra study, those that identified as loving Jesus but not the church read scripture half as much as the average practicing Christian are much less likely to read a book on spiritual topics have never attended groups or retreats with other practicing Christians. Additionally, only two in five or 18% of those individuals talk with their friends about spiritual matters. That's less than half of practicing Christians. When we are okay with Jesus, but we are not okay with the church, statistics actually show us that we are less likely to read the scriptures, we are less likely to read books on spiritual topics, we're less likely to attend any sort of small group or retreat, and we're less likely to talk to our friends about any spiritual matters. Additionally, in a society that's growing increasingly more concerned, and appropriately more concerned, with racial injustice, scholarship and research actually shows us that one of the only ways to reduce prejudice and actually change minds is through doing life with other people. The opposite of privatization, of individualism. In a 2020 New York Times opinion piece, David Brooks specifically outlines the persistence of racist attitudes despite increases in required diversity training across the U.S. Brooks goes on to say, people change when they are put in new environments, in permanent relationships with diverse groups of people. Their embodied minds adapt to the environments in a million different ways that we will never be able to understand, we'll never be able to plan. Decades ago, the social psychologist Gordon Alport wrote about the contact hypothesis that doing life together with people of other groups can reduce prejudice and change minds. It's how new emotional bonds are formed, how new conceptions of who is us and who is them come into being. He goes on to say the superficial way to change minds and behaviors doesn't seem to work to bridge either racial, partisan, or class lines. Real change seems to involve putting bodies from different groups in the same room, on the same team, in the same neighborhood. Furthermore, a 2017 Pew Research report done in Europe showed that stronger religious affiliation which is measured by attendance at religious services, importance of religion in one's life, and frequency of prayer, actually correlated with greater civic engagement. This, right here, is the mysterious beauty of the church. That on our own, despite our 
our intentions usually are really good. We struggle to do even the most basic of good works, like daily prayer, scripture reading, and spiritual conversations, much less the larger tasks of community engagement, and yes, even racial justice. With our Christian community, we are able to, verse 16, let our light shine for others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25, summarizes this beautifully. It says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up on meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Gathering together as the body of believers on Sunday, in our microchurches, and at service events, and even community gatherings happening in our neighborhood and city, actually help us be salt and light to the world that's around us. So here's what I'm simply asking you to do today. It's super simple. We always like to introduce some sort of spiritual practice that we can integrate into our daily life and daily routine. It's this, and it's summed up in two words. Show up. If you're here today, and you're still not sure whether you want to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that that is 100% okay. We would encourage you, we'd love if you're exploring that, and if you want help to continue to show up to our community. We want to be a safe space for that. If you're here today, and you are a disciple of Jesus, but you don't have a church family, we would love for you to show up to ours. And hey, I'll be honest, if it's not ours, if we're not our cup of tea, I've got tons of recommendations of great church communities in the area. I'll refer you. Alex and I can talk to you about your service. But lastly, if you're here today, and you consider yourself part of our Midtown Church family, you belong with us, I would challenge you to regularly and intentionally show up. Show up to your micro church. Show up to church. Show up to serve days. Show up to community events with people from your micro church or friends. Because in doing so, we realize that we become visible disciples of Jesus. And believe me, I know how self-serving all of this sounds, right? Come to the Cassie and Alex show. We want people to populate our services. Uh, believe me when I say that's not my heart. This church has not built, been built on a few people, but rather a really large team. But here is my heart. I'm super, super, super concerned with your spiritual formation. That's my job as a pastor. I really desire for you to learn what it's like to be with Jesus, become like him, and do what he did. I'm concerned by your spiritual formation. I also deeply, deeply, deeply care for this neighborhood and this community. And I know that if we don't all gather together on behalf of this community and this neighborhood, then nothing will happen. The scriptures, Jesus, and research shows us that if you divorce Jesus from the church, you're in danger of losing the very thing that makes you salt. The very thing that makes you light. The very thing that makes you a visible disciple of Jesus.